Your Most Avid Reader by Bibi Birkin. I've been a fool so long about you that I had to end it one way or another. If you want to stay silent, then so be it. Part of me dreads what you might have to say. Is it over? Will you let it be over? No. I didn't think so. You're dreading what I might say? Really? After all this? I do think you're a fool, if you must know. You're a fool if you think that I wouldn't have taken your idea and used it. I simply progressed it. Wasn't that why you told me? Because you were too scared to do it justice? It wasn't me who was stupid enough to let such a thing slip. And anyway, do you seriously think that a few years of scribbling rudimentary teenage claptrap would have guaranteed you a writing career? For all you know, you might still be struggling now, trying to get someone to notice your idea. And let's face it, it's not the most fabulous bit of literary invention in the world. It's a pretty standard template for historical romance with a very minor tweak. How do you know it wouldn't have been ignored by agent after agent, publisher after publisher, until now you'd be festering with resentment at them, not at me? So that's what's behind all that clumsy posturing I had to endure in your book. Anne Hadley crowing about the victory of total bastards against poor, wronged innocence. What an awful clunking diatribe that was! Oh, and not to mention Dominic whining about betrayal, about the pain of having love dangled in front of him, only to have it wrenched away. No wonder I winced when I read them. It was just you, belly aching. You think I'm heartless? Well, let me tell you, if we were characters in a book, then the reader would have a sneaky liking for me, with all my flaws, and not for you, the perfect little victim. You don't have to try, Rosalie, but I do. I have to work hard to get over the disadvantages of my own nature. I've carried this blackness with me throughout my life and succeeded, despite it. You've merely confirmed to me, with the story of your marriage and family, that you have, yet again, stumbled on good luck, whether you deserve it or not. Good point. Yes, you're right. It wasn't that special an idea. It might well have been thrown off every slush pile in the land. Yes, I could still be a total failure as a writer. But it was my idea, not yours. And while we're casting ourselves as anti-heroines, can I say that my inventing my alter ego, not to mention having to set up a bogus email account, took a fair bit of invention. I had to lower myself, but I did it for a reason. I wanted to hear you acknowledge the real origins of the idea, and you'd never do it to my face. Is that all? You wanted to see the name Rosalie Bennett on the book covers, not Monica Malone? What a very pathetic state of affairs. Well, you've won, haven't you? You gave me my career, and now you've taken it away. You can have no idea why your letter was so timely. You're being ridiculous. I can't take those books away from you. However much I seethe, I have to admit that you wrote them and that they're good. I don't want anything more. I feel too sullied by this whole process. No, I do want to know one thing. 
Why you hated me so much that you feel zero guilt over what you did. You have a funny, rather romantic view of writing, don't you? When you describe how much it means to you, I have the urge to throw up. Let me put you straight. Your idea was not for a book, but for a business. There's no artistic urge there. I certainly have no such pretensions. When I took the idea for my own, it was like buying a franchise. What mattered was making it readable and buyable, and I used any means going to do it. The fact that I couldn't bear the sight of you at the time made it all the easier to buy your idea. Are you saying that you don't have a creator's ego? That I find hard to believe. I don't understand you. I just wanted to write to make that my life's work. I didn't even care if I wasn't paid much for it. The more I think about it, the more convinced I am that you would never have made it. Your faith in your abilities and the marketplace is touching but misguided. An original idea doesn't equate to success, my dear childlike Rosalie. You want success? You have to go out and look for it. Go and look for it? You're not saying you went looking for me. We were good friends. You can't rewrite that one. We were the genuine article. It wasn't until the picnic that I realised that you might feel something other than friendship towards me. It came as an utter shock. I still shiver at how you turned on me. It stayed with me all these years. Oh, here we go. Well, I'm sitting comfortably. Do let's hear your version of it. We met by the statue of Gandhi in Tavistock Square. It was July, I think, and glorious. There were five of us. You, Dougie, me, Elaine Prentice and Susan Schneider. I remember that all the girls were in dresses, which was weird because Elaine, Sue and I were usually in jeans and T-shirts. It was that kind of day, end of term, easy, happy. Even you wore a dress, do you remember? You'd come straight from work and it was red and slim, a sheath dress it's called. It had a band of black around the neck. With your beautiful black bobbed hair, it framed your face just perfectly. You and Dougie were the most beautiful couple I knew. The girls and I felt a little cowed by the perfection of you. Your contribution was one solitary tub of M&S salad, a small one, which I thought was strange and unlike you. You were usually over-generous, even wasteful sometimes. Money was never an issue. I'd brought French bread and, I don't know, cheese and fruit probably. There was a pretty good range of things on the blanket and a couple of bottles of wine. It wasn't long until we were loose, relaxed, animated. Except for you, of course. Dougie was in his element. He was attempting an overwrought example of sexual innuendo for each item of food on the blanket. The bread was easy, the rest harder. We laughed, of course, because that's what friends do. They get carried away with a moment. Except you. You didn't laugh. Dougie was drunk and in very high spirits. At one point he laughed so suddenly that he spat out the entire contents of his mouth. I told him off jokingly and I glanced across at you with a what is he like kind of look on my face and you, well, Monica, you sneered at me. You actually sneered. Doesn't sound much to say it, does it? But it stopped me dead. It cut through me. You, my newest and already most dear friend, 
looked at me with total contempt. I didn't know what to do. You might as well have grown an extra head. I was so shocked. But I forgot it at once, or tried to, convinced that I'd misread it. I'm certain, however, that you scowled through the next ten or so minutes, at least until Dougie started harping on about his coterie of beautiful girls. I was getting uneasy, sensing that you weren't finding any of this funny. He leant forward, crushing the cakes, and tried to catch me round the waist, but I dodged him. The next thing I knew, he was standing up, rather unsteadily, and making his way towards me. I looked at you, and you looked at me. In your eyes, I saw pure, perfect hate. I'd never seen it there before, not directed towards me, anyway. Your husband came and grabbed me round the waist, and I yelped because I'd been held so securely by your gaze that his sudden touch was like a lightning bolt. Look at this tiny waist, Mon, he called out to you. I can put my hands around it. These girls need feeding up. I couldn't get away. I kept looking back at you while trying to extricate myself. Built like children, he tutted. Chuck us a cream bun. You ignored him, kept your gaze on me. Ducky, piss off, I said. Go back to your wife. Go and put your hands around her. Can't get my hands around her waist, he said. Can I, darling? Good job I like him, chunky. I had no choice but to laugh all this off. These things are awkward. I remember thinking how badly timed my laughter was. I was on edge with the thought that you might read some sort of collusion between me and Dougie, that we were mocking you. But surely none of this would bother you, a refined, intelligent woman like you. All the same, I felt I needed to side with you, to prove my loyalty. Dougie, you're a total asshole. I said to dismiss him. You spoke to me while rummaging in your handbag. Do you know, Rosalie, it sounds very vulgar when you talk to my husband like that. I don't like hearing you calling him Dougie, let alone an asshole. I couldn't answer that. Still can't, really. Was that familiar version of your husband's name your copyright or something? Shouldn't you have told me so? I remember Sue feeling that she needed to smooth things over and kept trying to engage me in academic conversation. But I was acutely conscious that you were hurt, and now and again would try and draw you in, but you were having none of it. When we got up to leave, I recall feeling something like a wound opening up inside me. I was in constant confusion, questioning. Think, think, what did I say that was so hurtful? It's not too late to take it back, perhaps. Are you coming to the pub? I asked, and I slipped my arm through yours so that we could walk there as we always did, each other's property. You just stared at me, held me in the tractor beam. No, you said. Oh, I asked. You sure? One day, you said, I won't have to mix with desperate and scheming little losers like you lot. And you pushed me. Nobody saw, but you jabbed your finger into my shoulder blade, and I stepped back and caught my foot on the glass. I raised my foot, I remember, to stop myself breaking the glass, and I just fell. Tumbled back right onto my ass, slapped back onto the remaining picnic food. I was terrified. Isn't that funny? I was in shock as I sat there, broken plastic sticking into my legs, my hands sunken into uneaten food. I remember shaking with horror and humiliation. I opened my mouth, but I couldn't talk. 
One of the girls uttered a cry and came to help me, and I looked up and saw your face, yours and Dougie's. Yours registered absolutely nothing, and his was distorted with glee. You prat, he said to me, and he just brayed, the evil little fucker. I was never quite sure about him, but this clinched it. Anyway, he didn't matter. What really left me reeling was you. I'd never encountered such a sudden withdrawal of all previous affection. Certainly not among adult friends. If you'd have shot me, it wouldn't have been any more surprising. You walked away then, just turned your back and I watched you as you left. Your beautiful strong body in that bold red dress, swinging your handbag and reaching for your husband's loose hand. You just swept him up and took him away from us. I remember you making a point of leaning across and kissing him on the cheek and he squeezed your ass, and there you both went. I stood and watched and wondered, did I ever know her? Was I mistaken? Was she ever really my friend? More to the point, I was furious with myself for having upset you, for having been so clumsy and thoughtless. Can you believe that? I thought I was the guilty party. I only saw you one more time, in Oxford Street, just as you were leaving your office. I smiled and said it was your turn to come round to mine for dinner. But you looked through me and walked past. There was no mistaking it then. Even though for days afterwards I told myself that maybe you hadn't seen me. Maybe I was getting paranoid. That's how I remember it. A shocking, tearing apart of two people. And to this day, I don't understand why. Hillary was played by Rebecca Charles. Monica by Georgina Sutton. Your Most Avid Reader was written by Bibi Berkey, with sound editing by Mark Lingwood. It was made by Tempest Productions and brought to you with the kind support of Rattlesnake Books, an established seller of books, maps, ephemera, art and curiosities. Rattlesnake Books can be found on Instagram, Etsy, Abe Books and Biblio. Thank you.